Galatians chapter 4 is where we are headed this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 20. Follow as I read. Uh, This is Paul's leadership in love. Listen as I read. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and had and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make, you, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could present I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is not a passage that a lot of people are familiar with. This is a section in Galatians that isn't probably the top 10 most memorized verses in Scripture. But as I found, and if you're locked into expository preaching, which drives you into texts that you're less familiar with, what I found is that this text is a great example of leadership and how to lead, particularly as a leader who leads with love, leading with love. There's two ways to lead. If you sort of generalize, you can be a leader who's motivated by and conveying love or someone who is by contrast, motivated by hate, motivated by intimidation, motivated by pride. But you're either a loving leader or more of a hate-driven leader. And I've seen both models in different arenas, and it is a stark contrast and a very, very big difference. For the Christian, there is no category of leading with hate or by hate. The only Christian way to lead is by love. During the final days of the collapsing Marxist experiment in the Soviet Union, the Soviet novelist um, Chiniz Altamov recounted, and he was an author, he, he recounted in one of his articles something that Stalin did, Joseph Stalin and his leadership. In 1935, he Uh, invited his trusted senior advisors and some media henchmen uh, to come around him as a propaganda stunt and as a leadership statement. He invited them to this barnyard setting and used a very evocative method by calling to himself a chicken. He grabbed a chicken and vigorously clenched it in one hand. With the other hand, he began to pluck it out, pluck out the chicken's feathers in handfuls. The chicken was squawking and struggling and in vain tried to escape. And he continued uh, this painful denuding of the bird until it was completely stripped. 
much to the sort of dumbfoundedness of his onlookers. They're in shock. And then Stalin said to them, now you watch. Placing the chicken on the floor, he walked, uh, it, he walked away from it and sprinkled some breadcrumbs on the ground. And incredibly, the fear-crazed chicken hobbled toward him, sidling up next to his trousers. And Stalin threw a handful of grain to the bird and it began to follow him around. He turned to his colleagues at that point and he said, this is the way to rule the people. Did you see how the chicken followed me for food even though I had caused it such torture? People are like that chicken. If you inflict the inordinate, inordinate pain on them, they will follow you for food and, and for the rest of their lives. The moment you offer them what they need, they will follow you and turn to you for their survival. This is Joseph Stalin. This is a shocking example of wrong leadership. It's effective leadership. It works, but it's wrong, and it, it's harmful, and it's hurtful. And we could say, well, that's relegated just to the dictators of society. That's the Hitler-Stalins of the world. It's the Gaddafi method. No, this is also something that you can see in more subtler ways in the workplace, you can see this where a boss will come across tyrannically and, and be oppressive and hurtful to subordinates, leveraging their opportunity. But even worse than the workplace, in the home, it's horrible. Parents to children dominating, using anger, using threats, creating standards that are unreachable for children, harmful methods, harmful abusive methods, even in the home from a husband to a wife or a wife to a husband, bullying techniques. These are things that we understand we have come in contact with before. This is not leading with love. This kind of intimidation, hate leadership creates people who are unwitting slaves who obey out of sheer terror and fright and fear. They fear the outcomes of not following their leader. Many are reduced to being joyless and even soulless. They lose themselves, creating a new norm, knowing no better than the existence that they find themselves to be in. Women and children are often targeted in this way, being more vulnerable. But I would say that one area that we need to think very, um, I think, take a concerted effort and a, a very clear look at is how this can come into the church. This can come into the church. This kind of intimidating hate leadership was happening within the church at Galatia. This is what Paul is confronting. This is what Paul is standing in contrast to. Paul is a leader of love. He's leading through the gospel. He's leading in the name of Christ Jesus, who is the God of love. 1 John 4, 7, and 8, particularly verse 8, God is love. The gospel is a message of love. The gospel is a message of long-suffering, patience, and an enduring spirit of self-sacrifice to others. Jesus is the pinnacle of that sacrifice, being the model and example of laying his life down for the flock as the God of love. Without love, we do not have the church. We do not have the gospel. 
So you can either lead with hate or lead with love. You can either be unchristian, non-Christian. You can either be worldly or you can be godly through leading in love. There's worldly and and that's soulless leadership. And there's godly and relational leadership. There's damaging and fear-driven leadership. And then there's loving leadership that builds and inspires. There's superficial and... Catch this, behavior-modifying leadership that is superficial, and then there is deep character-building, heart-transforming, gospel-loving, patient leadership that can happen in the workplace where you model it, even if you don't overtly say the name of Christ through that leadership, or in the home where your children are blown away by your patience that is spirit-driven. Or in the church, where we should be esteeming others higher than ourselves, loving each other with enduring, long-suffering, loving, heart-transforming leadership. And I'll, I'll just apply this in the home and in, in the context of discipleship. If you want to win your children to Christ, if you want to win your friend to Christ, or you want to win your child or teenager to growing in Christ, you want to win your good friend or spouse to growing in Christ, you have to lead through love. Leading through love targets the heart. Leading through love lasts. It has lasting impact rather than a temporal behavior modifying impact that's through worldly measures. One version of leadership hardens the heart. The other version of leadership softens and transforms the heart. Paul here models for us in this morning's text what it looks like to lead through love. Billy Graham's uh, uh, predecessor, D.L. Moody, in the 19th century said this. He said, "There there is no use trying to do church work without love. A doctor, a lawyer may do good work without love, but God's work cannot be done without love. And uh, you doctors and lawyers should be doing your work through love as well. It's my sort of asterisk on his quote. Leading with love, it's not, I want to just put this up front as a foundation. It's not passive. Leading with love doesn't mean you're, you're necessarily soft-spoken. It doesn't mean that you lay back. It doesn't mean that you um, go under the banner of peace with all cost. Peace peace at all cost. Hey, we're not going to go there. We're just going to let it go in the name of love. Love does not look the other way or dumb down sin. Love is the hard path, not the easy path. Love is the aggressive, active path, not the passive path. Love is not being a coward, but it's being brave. It's taking the costly path through patience. How do you effectively lead with love? That's our outline. We're only going to pick up on the first two points this morning because I have a lot to say regarding those. So be patient with me as we plod through our text. Verse 12, look at it again. Brothers, I entreat you, Become as I am. Let's stop there. Brothers, number one, you lead by example. Leading by example or you model. 
If you want to have something to memorize for your life and for your day-to-day activities, just to bring it up, you have to be a model. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. That's very, very vulnerable in terms of being a leader. Paul did not see himself as the paragon of all spiritual virtue. He saw himself as the chief of sinners. He is the testimony of Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He knew he was a sinner. He knew that he was no better than anyone else. He wrote Philippians 2, to esteem others higher than yourself. He knew that, and yet he would put himself out there because he also knew that modeling is the most effective way to reach people's hearts and lives. Face-to-face communication is irreplaceable. Paul's writing a letter, but he's basing his correspondence on the fact that he was there with them personally, face-to-face. You should never try to go to church on YouTube. Uh, Church is face-to-face ministry. If you're a businessman who travels, you realize the reason people travel still, rather than just using iPad communication and FaceTime and things like that, is because face-to-face personal contact is irreplaceable in terms of the impact that you can bring in a conversation, the sale that you can make by being face-to-face with someone else. The vibes that you feel are real, and it's personal. That's why we spend oodles of monies and miles to go see people in the lower 48. It's because face-to-face is irreplaceable. It's powerful, and it's very powerful in the context of discipleship, and that's what Paul is hitting on. And he's talking to them as brothers. Well, it's about time, right? If you remember, chapters 1 and chapters 2 and even chapter 3 is a no-punch-pulling um, set of chapters, series of chapters. Paul's very strong. He calls them all kinds of names. He, he calls, basically says they are deserters, chapter 1, verse 6. He says, be warned, you could be part of the accursed. There are false teachers here. If you believe what they say, you could be under a curse, first, that's uh, chapter 1, 8, and 9. He calls out Peter, their hero and leader. says he was a hypocrite. He was part of the hypocrisy that was going on in the church, chapter 2, 13. He calls them foolish. He calls them bewitched, chapters 3, verse 1. So for him to address them now as brothers is not a bad turn of the page, right? Brothers, Adolfoy, ones that I love as families, affirming them as believers here. Paul's tone in this section is taking a decided turn at the midpoint in this letter. He wants to appeal to their hearts. He wants to move from argumentation to affection. He wants to appeal by love. He's been wrestling with gospel doctrine. We know that and we'll wrestle again with doctrine. Uh, We've talked about salvation in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then 4, 5, and 6 here will be about sanctification or personal growth. And he's going to wrestle with gospel doctrine again. But this is a moment where he's appealing to them very pastorally. Martin Luther about this section said, Up till now, Paul has been occupied wholly in teaching. He's so incensed at the Galatians' revolt, he now begins to realize that he has treated them too sharply. Therefore, being careful not to do more harm than good, he shows that his sharp chiding came from fatherly affection and the true true apostolic heart. No doubt many people were offended by his words, but he qualifies the matter with gentle words to win them back. 
I'm not sure exactly, you know, how I line up with this quote. Uh, Paul was harsh. I don't know that he was too harsh. He was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But the sentiment is right. He's trying to rein them back. And that's how you have to work with people. You have to say the hard thing, but you also have to open your heart up with love. It has Things that you say have to be in a setting of love for there to be receptivity. And with simple monosyllables, as John Stott put it, he introduces leadership loving through modeling. Look at verse 12. I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. What's he trying to do? There are some leaders who will be so self-confident and self-consumed that they will try to create a, a false version of imitation where they will say, I have arrived. And so now if you follow me and you act like me and you use the same toothpaste I use or dress the same way I dress or act or use my turn of the phrase stuff that I say or read the books I read, then you'll be okay spiritually. That happens in the church all the time. And that is, whether it's a pastor doing that or just someone in the congregation, that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is not trying to be the church, the church's rock star here. He's just recounting how he engaged them and how they engaged him. He's talking that there was a two-way dynamic when he showed up, when he won them to Christ. He's not trying to create codependency he's not trying to do that at all he's in essence saying do you remember when i came i brought you christ and him crucified remember galatians 2 20 i've been crucified with christ it's not that not how they live but christ who lives in me he came in the name of jesus the galatians uh was were people who were gentiles they weren't really by and large familiar with Judaism. They weren't familiar per se with the Old Testament. There were synagogues there. And so they probably had some proselyte Jews who were Gentiles who were worshiping in the Jewish synagogues. You have Jews who were part of this church, obviously, and they knew their Old Testament. And Paul was referencing the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the law. So he was connecting the dots of all of scripture with them. But you have to remember, These are Gentiles that are by and large trying to figure out if they have to be circumcised before they can be on the in crowd in the church. Do we have to follow Jewish traditions? They were being tempted by the Judaizers who were saying, listen, you used to be part of pagan festivals. Well, the Jews have their own festivals as well. Join them and you'll fit in more with church. And that's what Paul is confronting. He's saying, don't paganize the gospel. Remember that the gospel at root is about heart transformation. And I came to you in the name of Christ, bringing to you a gospel of heart transformation. A gospel that changed your life because you realized that you were forgiven for all of your sins. He came in the power of Christ. This is Christian discipleship. And this is something you are equally called to. This is what you should be a part of. So many people will say, how do I get involved in church? Or I don't necessarily like the programs in church. I don't like the offerings of church. But you have to understand, fundamentally, to be a Christian means that you are discipling someone in the name of Christ. And you are being discipled by someone in the name of Christ. 
So how do you do that? How do you do that? What does that look like? It just simply looks like talking about Jesus and talking about what he's doing in your life. Remember, the Great Commission is teaching all that Jesus has commanded you. You're teaching the teachings of Christ, and you're talking about what God's doing in your life, and you're listening to what God's doing in other people's lives. You're speaking through Christian applications as you make learners in Christ. You say, How does, what does this look like? Well, again, look at verse 12. Paul says, become as I am for, and he qualifies what that looks like. Be like me, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, how did he do it? For I also have become as you are. What did Paul mean by what he was saying here? I have become as you are. He wasn't saying that they need to conform to him superficially as he showed up. What he's saying is that when he and Barnabas showed up, he conformed to them. He wasn't saying when he showed up, hey, be a Jew, be Jewish like me. Join my club. No, he was coming in the name of Christ with the gospel and he was conforming to them. He was eating their food. He was living with them. He was fitting in with their manners and customs. He was loving them in essence. He was being a neighbor to them so that he would win them by the gospel of grace. There's a, there's a trend in the church and it still happens in more subtle ways. It was stronger about 10 years ago, but it was called, it's the trend of contextualization. You'll hear about churches saying, we need to reach people by learning culture. We need to become the cultural gurus if we're going to win people to Christ. We need to know how people think and what they're interested in. And we need to participate in their social events. And oftentimes this was done in the name of being able to be Um, given permission as a Christian to be more edgy. We need to go into the bar scene and we need to go into worldly settings to reach people where they are and we need to imbibe their music and and their way of um, talking, their slang, their version of dress because if we don't build that bridge, we're not going to reach people for Christ. And people would cite 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul says, I became all things to all men that I might win some as a way to be worldly. That's not what Paul is talking about. 1 Corinthians 9 is talking about deferring your rights. It's laying down your areas of comfortability so that you can win people to Christ. It's removing barriers. I mean, there is some truth. Well, I'm not saying that we should just put our heads in the sand and not think about our culture and not think about things that are going on or trends, but we don't want the proverbial tail to wag the dog. If you want to reach people for Christ, you need to think in terms of this. Who is that person and what would be a barrier? What would keep that person from coming to know Christ? And is there something that I'm doing that I could let go of? In the context of this relationship, so that that heart would open. So this is not some programmatic fad in the church that we're talking about here. This is talking about releasing our liberties, letting our own liberties, letting our own things that are fun for us go in the context of relating to one another to win people to Christ. What does this look like? Well, I would invite you to turn over to 1 Corinthians 9 to this very passage. Let me just walk through what Paul was talking about when he laid down his rights. He was passionate about the gospel. Verse 18, he says, What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make 
full use of my right of the gospel. What is Paul saying he's laying down? He's saying that he's laying down any salary that he could receive for preaching the gospel. That's what he's saying here. I mean, he talks about the laborer in the gospel is worthy of his wage. He's worthy of double honor, that you can make your living on the gospel. He speaks of that. But for Paul, he was willing to lay that down to remove any barriers so that he could be a missionary and reach people for Christ. Verse 19, for though I am free of all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. So he's taking on a servant-hearted demeanor where he wouldn't have necessarily needed to. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. So when he's winning a Jew, he's, he's practicing Jewish traditions. He's continuing in things that really are not required of a Christian. That's the whole point of Galatians. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. He, he knew he wasn't keeping himself right with God by being under the law, but he functioned that way for the sake of winning people. For those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. So then he would just not do those things when he was with Gentiles, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. He's not speaking of being someone who's willy-nilly in terms of the commands of Christ. He was still obeying Christ's commands, which are the law of Christ, Christ who applied the moral principles of the law through the gospel. Those applications were still live in Paul's heart and life, but he wasn't acting as if he was under the Old Testament law when he was around Gentiles. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak. He means spiritually weak. There are certain privileges that strong believers can take and do. If you want to hear more about that, come to the Q&A at 5 p.m. Let's say it together, class, 5 p.m. tonight. Um, We'll talk about that. We're going to have a stump the pastor session on all the gray areas, right? And you'll watch us squirm. It'll be a whole fun time for 25 minutes till we cut it off. But, but that's what we're talking about. He, He became weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. You say, what does this look like really? What is a practical example? Well, 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and following gives an example, a scenario of how this works. It's a dinner party. An unbeliever is inviting you or a Christian as a believer to a dinner party. And then there is a another believer or other believers who are invited there as well. So let's just say it's like people from different churches are showing up with different beliefs and different convictions, but they're all invited to the same unbelievers dinner party. It's a wealthy unbeliever who is just interested in um, relating together and he's got some meat and suddenly the meat is brought out and somehow it is distinguished by a believer there. Oh, that's meat sacrificed to idols. Whoops, I can't eat that. That's demon meat. That's what they would say when they see that. That's something I can't even touch or be in the same room with because people do witchcraft around that meat and that's making me sick to my stomach. Or I used to be a pagan worshiper and the taste of that reminds me of what I used to do. It's like music or alcohol. Those things for certain people remind, they summon memories that you go, "I I can't be a part of this. I can't go there. And so 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and following tells the Christian what to do in that situation. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his good, but the good of his neighbor. 
Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So he's basically saying you can eat it. You could eat the meat. Meat is just meat wherever it was used. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So you're trying to reach the person. You're trying to go there. I tried to reach um, an Indian family one time and nearly choked to death on um, the Indian food because I just can't go there. Uh, I, it, was, it was a tough thing. I needed this verse in that moment. I did. I did. But this is what we're talking about. Verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice. In other words, someone's conscience is spiking. Then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? So his conscience doesn't change your conscience, but for his conscience sake, you don't eat the meat. All right, let's just stop for a second. Let's take it out of the, we're reading, just, just open the sanctified imagination. Here we are sitting around, you know, cue the dinner music, whatever that would be like, and the meat's being, you know, passed around, and someone says, I can't go there. And you go, okay, well, I can't go there either awkward right super awkward for the host he's prepared the meal he's providing it for you and you're saying i can't do that verse 30 if i partake with thankfulness why am i denounced because of that which i give thanks so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do all for the glory of god you can eat meat sacrificed to idols but in this instance we have to be very careful give no offense to jews or to Greeks, or to the church of God. Verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. All right, so aren't we trying to reach unbelievers here? What is, what is the deal here? Here's the test. The test is whether or not you're willing to risk awkwardness with an unbeliever who needs the spirit of God to open his or her heart to be able to understand the gospel anyway. How do you do that? In that case where you would offend someone's conscience, you sit back and you're unified in the body of Christ, deferring to that brother or sister in Christ there. Eat the salad, not the meat, right? Um, Pass the bread or whatever, and you get through it, and it's a symbol of unity in the body, and it shows the unbeliever how you will stick up for believers in the body of Christ, how unified you are. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17 to sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And in that context, he says, I'm praying that they would all be one, that they would be unified so that through this testimony of unity, the world would believe. So when you are unified in the body of Christ in front of unbelievers, unbelievers are impressed by that. They see that. The freedoms here are profound. Uh, Again, Paul is giving permission to eat meat sacrificed idols, eat demon meat, unless you're going to ruin your witness as people are watching you. So you have to be careful of that. There are entertainment choices that come to mind, right? Movie choices. There There are issues surrounding alcohol, dancing, listening to secular music, how you dress, whether or not you're uh, allowing yourself to go to the swimming pool at the same time if men and women are there. 
Um, friendships, friendships you maintain with unbelievers, or is, is that allowable? Schools that you allow your children to attend, and the list goes on. Let's go back again to verse 12. We'll answer all that tonight at 5 p.m. All right. Um, chapter 4, Galatians 4, verse 12. Nothing, as I said, replaces face-to-face discipleship. This is exactly what Paul is referencing at the end of verse 12, where he says, you did me no wrong. He's setting the stage by saying, I was with you. I won you to Christ. I lived with you. I deferred to you. I fit in with your world, with your setting, with your circumstances. And I did that in this context, the context of your love towards me. You did me literally no harm, no harm. Why does he say that? Why does he say that? Well, that leads us right into the next verse. Verse 13, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Paul obviously got sick. Some people will attribute this sickness, literally the weakness of his flesh, as the thorn in the flesh from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. The thorn in the flesh I take on a more spiritual basis that he was, Paul was being plagued by False teachers who were messengers of Satan. That's what he calls the thorn in the flesh. An angelos of Satan who were demonized false teachers attacking him personally. That's what 2 Corinthians is all about. And he was praying that that would leave him. And God said, no, three times. My grace is sufficient for you. Here we're talking about a bodily ailment. Now, we don't know. And scholars conjecture what this was. Paul is going to reference in Um, the next verse or so about his eyes and the idea that this could be an eye disease. And it could be that he had an eye disease, an oozing, grotesque eye disease that that would have been a turnoff for people in terms of the missionary is coming to town and he's got conjunctivitis on steroids, right? But we don't know. Paul and Barnabas in the first missionary journey, as you would see in your Bible map page, left Antioch. The dotted line goes to Cyprus, and they're in this area, and they, they're evangelizing. Uh, Paul struck someone um, with blindness who was opposing him. Later, they go up uh, north in the Mediterranean to um, a place called Pamphylia and um, Perga, and that's Acts 13, um, 13 through 14. This is a coastal region, mosquito-infested. So perhaps he was bitten by um, a mosquito with malaria. Maybe he had malaria. Maybe he had the sweats. Maybe it, it created an eye disease. We don't know. We don't know. But the circumstances were rough, and he looked very rough because he's referencing this and saying that he had to leave that region of maybe Pamphylia and shoot up to the Galatian area where it was drier, where he could get to him, perhaps where he could heal. And they received him. They received him at first. The circumstances of him getting sick meant that he preached to them first. That's what he's saying. I went to you because I was in a bad way. And verse 14, and though my condition was a trial to you, it was pressure on you, you did not scorn or despise me. I was not revolting to you. I was not repulsive to you. You received me. These are very strong words that would give the green light to your average person to loathe Paul. That's what one of the words means literally, being loathed. But instead, they loved Paul. 
And Paul loved them. He was received by them. How well was he received? Look again. Verse 15. Actually, the the end of verse 14. You received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Do you see that? Philippians 1 comes to mind. To live is Christ. They They had not seen Jesus where they lived. They had not experienced Christ dying on the cross. They did through Paul's preaching. Christ came, and you have to catch this, and you have to think about this. Christ came to them through Paul. Christ comes to your neighbor, whoever he or she may be, to your child, to your teenager, to your coworker, through you. You are Christ to them. The church is the body of Christ. We are the witness of Jesus Christ. And you're Christ. And that's what Paul is saying. I came and you received me as Christ. And so Paul's life, even though externally, he was physically just messed up. His heart, his gospel was Christ to them. And he was received by them. And he's asking them to re-enter into that scenario. They received him as an angel. They didn't worship him. Remember the scenario in Acts 14, where Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, I've referenced this, they healed someone, raised someone up. And, and because of that, they were called Zeus and Hermes. And Paul rebuked that. He wasn't rebuking this. Angel is angelos. It could be that he was received as a messenger of God. I think probably this is a reference to treating angels well, like Abraham did in the Old Testament. But this is uh, Paul saying, you received me as an angel of God, as a messenger of God, as Christ Jesus himself. It's like Jesus came to your house, and that's what our experience was. He's saying, trust me. We were endeared together. I brought the message of deliverance. Look at verse 15. It says, what then has become of your blessedness? The words of Jesus come to mind as quoted in Acts. It's more blessed to what? Give than to receive. Paul is calling them out again through love, saying you've become self-centered, self-focused, empty, joyless, Hurtful, you're under tyrannical leadership. You're under pressure leadership. The Judaizers are trying to put the clamps on you and get you to obey the law as if you don't know grace. And they're jeopardizing your spiritual health. You're hurting. The implication here is that they they have lost their joy. Where is your blessedness? Where's the joy that we experience together? Where'd it go? This is what... We ask ourselves when we self-diagnose and say, man, I'm not joyful right now. Why aren't I joyful? Where is my joy? And we have to ask ourselves, are we in a giving disposition? Are we others-centered or are we being self-consumed? That's his loving question that he's asking. He's already given the very first command in Galatians. The very first command is verse 12, become as I am. And then this rhetorical question is just as strong. What then has become of your blessedness? Where is your joy that has been robbed? What was joy based on? He says, I testify, verse 15, I witness to you. I'm a witness that if possible, you would have gouged out. This is 
let's get gross here. The kids are in the room. It's fun. Um, you're, you're, li- you're literally willing to dig out your eyes and give them to me. And eyesight was a premium as it is now. It was a big time premium back then. And we don't know if his reference here to eyesight and eyeballs has to do with Paul having an eye disease, but that's how scholars put it together for fun and call it a PhD. All that to say, we just don't know. It's hyperbole. He's just saying, you would have given me your eyes. You were, you were giving me everything. And that counted for your blessing. It's blessing. Something that... Uh, my, my wife put together with her um, Bible class. I don't think she would mind if I share this. Um, she may afterwards, but she can't do a whole lot now. I guess you could. Um, but but she, she had the kids during Christmas time uh, in her Bible class put together care packages for people who stand and beg in our culture. And if you drive around, you don't have to go downtown. You can go to Sam's Club or Costco or wherever. You have people who are out there with signs and you... you probably recognize them and people live outside here which is uh, i unthinkable to me i don't understand it but um but handing out bags of socks and hand warmers and you know power bars and and cliff bars and things like that even to people that looked well put together i told my kids i said i'm handing this bag out um to that person because they were saying i don't know if that person really you know is of the same category if someone's standing there asking for that on the street and it's 10 outside give them a bag right you don't really ask but that that's not enough that's not enough giving right that's that shouldn't like rationalize our conscience by doing that but i'll say that my heart attitude by practicing that made for a more joyful experience driving around because otherwise you're kind of there and you're wondering, should I give them money? Should I not? Should I look the other way, right? You experience this. But by actually doing something tangible and having a plan and doing something where you can be proactive, it fills the heart with joy. That's the joy of giving rather than just going, oh man, I got to go to Sam's Club and park far away. You're in a different mindset. And that's what Paul is saying they used to have and that they had subsequently lost by succumbing to false bad leadership. All right, point two, and I'll finish quickly with this because we have to go into communion. Point two is risking the relationship. I just have a little to say about this. Love is willing to risk the relationship. Gospel love says hard things and hears hard things. Loving leadership confronts. Loving leadership does not lay back and say, oh, I'm not going to do it. Peace at all costs. Loving leadership is that painful, persevering, enduring, risk-taking, brave leadership where you will enter into hard conversations with people in a loving way, speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4 says. You're speaking it with gentleness. You're doing it with a mindset that otherwise, Ephesians 4 says, people are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by false teaching. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, I'm speaking truth in Love. Look at verse 16. How hard did he speak it? I don't know. You think this is straight up? Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? That's laying it on the line. Paul's saying, am I someone to be hated, literally hated by you because I've told you the truth? Because I'm willing to go there about 
the fact that I see you straying, I see the schemes of Satan working in your life. I'm dealing truthfully with you and you are repulsed now by me as your enemy. You used to be willing to give your eyes for me and now you're repelled by me. Why? Because you disagree with me, I'm now your enemy. That's what we're saying here. When I'm just trying to speak the truth. Confrontation is love. And Paul's asking them to look in the mirror, to evaluate themselves and evaluate the relationship that they once had with Paul compared to what they have now with him. Now, as an expositor, I've given my life to speaking truth and I speak truth in public ministry and private ministry. There are times when I say things that are pretty hardcore and you may know that. You might come because I say things straight up and, and strongly. I sat with a pastor who's a, a pastor of a large church in Anchorage. He's been here a long time. And he said, you know, do you say those things? And I was like, yeah, I say those things. And he, yeah, do you say, yeah, we say these things. I mean, this is part of what we do. And people respond. People leave the church over things that we say. And that's really difficult. It's very hard for me to speak truth and lose friendships. It's been very tough and it happens. It happens. You name names, you name trends, you name dangerous people, you name sin issues, patterns, and you say things that seem harsh because it's making people feel uncomfortable, but you're saying something to try to help someone and you're not always going to do it perfectly well or out of the right motive, but you do your best. I've had leaders before tell me, people I respect tell me, don't do this, be more generic. And Uh, I'm not indicting any of our leadership um, here, but I'm just saying people that I respect, people I respect have said, Jeff, careful. And I want to be careful, but I also want to say what I need to say to help at risk of becoming someone's enemy. And that's what you have to do sometimes. It's not just for the paid preacher. I was, I I can't help but share um, a funny paragraph that I read from Philip Ryken on this. He talks about the perfect pastor. The perfect pastor, what is that? Well, here it is. He condemns sins, but never upsets anyone. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also the janitor. Denny Franz knows better than that. He makes $60 a week and gives about 50 a week to the poor. He's 28 years old, according to this, and he's been preaching for 30 years. The perfect pastor smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his work. He spends all his time evangelizing the unchurched and is always in the office when needed. Well, verses 16 and 17 are going to be a decided shift in this paragraph. We're going to pick that up next time. It talks very clearly about the difference between loving leadership and false leadership, what it looks like to be an abusive, nefarious, criminal leader. And he's calling the Galatians to make a real choice.